he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. He, well, you get the picture. But what picture is the picture that you imagine? If you're a fan of 19th century German literature, you may picture Gretchen pulling petals off a daisy in Goethe's famous play, Vaust, and Gretchen rejoicing as she removes the final petal. He loves me. Faust loves me. If you're a fan of slightly less classical fiction, you may picture Disney's Little Mermaid pulling the petals off a sea flower in 1989 before Sebastian, the singing Jamaican sea crab, breaks into the famous song, Under the Sea. And so the mermaid Ariel also rejoicing as she removes the final petal. He loves me. Prince Eric loves me. And so for most of us, I guess, that the he loves me, he loves me not rhyme makes us picture a kind of silly schoolgirl kind of love. A confident young love, a love without any fear, for all the flirty signs are there, the next date is certain, the Disney happily ever after wedding is assured. But what if we took the questioning away from its initial confident in love context? What if we were to picture Ariel, the mermaid post-wedding, sitting at the kitchen table, coffee mug in hand, genuinely beginning to doubt Eric's love for her? What if we were to picture the little mermaid after her, her Disney wedding, having done something deeply unkind to Eric? having spoken incessant lies about her lover, maybe even having been unfaithful to him. And so Ariel at the kitchen table, guilty, dismayed, and uncertain if Eric will forgive her. He loves me, he loves me not. Or what if we were to picture an even older Ariel? Her old, talking sea creature friends now all rejecting her, and her Eric back off at sea as well, on business far away. And so Ariel at the kitchen table, alone and rejected, suffering and uncertain if she will see Eric again. He loves me, he loves me not. Well, friends, whoever we are, uh, whether we are female or, or male, whether we've been married years or whether we're single, I wonder if you've ever doubted the love of the one you love the most. Well, if you had, you wouldn't be the only one. For many people found themselves trapped in that rhyme as they doubt the love of their beloved spouse or, or their beloved friend or their beloved parent or child because circumstances have seemingly changed once confident beginnings such that now their love is uncertain. Many people are sadly enslaved to that, that endless game, unable to break free from those oscillating doubts. He loves me, he, he loves me not. But what is even worse, far worse, is that miserably, some Christians play this game with God. For some believers, indeed many believers, in their Christian lives will at some point struggle with the notion that God loves them. Indeed, some of you, right here, right now in this room, I know 
Spend many an hour at the kitchen table, coffee mug in hand, wondering, doubting, uncertain, undulating between those two petal choices. He loves me, he loves me not. God loves me, God loves me not. Christian, I wonder if that's you this morning. And if it's not you, or at least it's not you right now, then I wonder how you might speak to the Christian friend who doubts that God really loves them. You see, this morning's passage is all about that. It's all about whether we can know the answer to that most fundamental of questions. Does the holy God of the universe, the, the maker of all, does God really love little old me? Accordingly, in a sense, our passage this morning summarizes not only our, our series in Romans chapter 8, but summarizes the whole of this letter written by the Apostle Paul to this insecure first century church in Rome who often asked, does God love me or does he love me not? And to answer that most fundamental of questions, I want to ask three questions of our passage this morning. Question one, when do you feel he loves me not? Question two, what tells me he loves me? And question three, how does he love me? That's where we're going this morning. If you don't have time to scribble down that roadmap, don't worry because I'll be signposting it uh, along the way. Indeed, our first road sign is already here. Our first question this morning, when do you feel he loves me not? When do you feel he loves me not? In verse 31, in our opening verse, Paul begins, what then shall we say to these things? Well, then should we say to these things, which should immediately uh, make us ask, what things? What are the things to which Christians are to respond to? Well, there's a sense in which this is uh, merely a summary phrase, such that we may read verse 31 as the equivalent of the teacher wrapping up the class, with a so then in conclusion, children, what should we say to these things that I've been talking about? However, when we look at the overall context, we see that there are two main things that Paul has primarily been speaking to, two painful things in the Christian life, uh, two things which cause that the believer uncertainty, two enemy voices, if you will, that cause the Christian to doubt God's love, two circumstances that Paul wants these Christians to be confident in their speaking into. And these two doubt-inducing enemies... These two antagonistic circumstances are sin and suffering. Sin and suffering. For if you look back over the, the past few chapters, we see it is those two things that, that Paul has been addressing. For firstly, all the way through this letter, Paul has been highlighting the Christian's old problem with sin. And recently, at the end of chapter 7, Paul has been highlighting the Christian's ongoing problem with sin. For chapter 7, verse 21. Paul shares of his own struggle with, with, with this evil which is always close at hand. For Paul has been at pains to remind the Romans that though they are free from the power of sin, they are not free from the presence of sin. And that sadly, Christians will still commit evil. Now, if you're not a Christian here, I'm sure that you know that this is true of Christians. But do you know that, that Christians know this about themselves? Christians are not those who pretend not to sin. Sadly, every Christian still needs to confess sin. That's why we have a prayer of confession every single week. Matt and I confidently put it down on the service guide every single Monday morning. 
Not not wondering if our church might possibly need to confess our sin in six days' time, but knowing that our church will certainly need to do that because our church comprises of people like Matt and I. Friends, Christians sin. And again, in our passage today, we see that this topic is still foremost in Paul's mind. For in verse 33, he considers the charges against the elect. And verse 34, he ponders the Christian's condemnation. And as Paul reflects on the the Christian's sin, he knows that, that some will be prone to doubt the love of God. For that is how we have been trained to think since childhood. And sadly, some of us more than others. For when it comes to others, what we're trained to think, when I deeply offend the, the person that I love, my relationship with them is, is kind of rockier than it was. For just like the imaginary future Ariel wife who sits at the kitchen table, doubting Prince Eric's love because she has done something deeply unkind to him, it is when the believer sins against their God that they are most likely to doubt their beloved's love and so ask the question, he loves me not? And in a sense, that that uncertainty is understandable. For the storyline of Scripture, the whole storyline, is that sin puts a barrier between us and a holy God. Sin first arrives on the scene in Genesis chapter 3, and by the end of that chapter, we read of a flaming sword that guards the way to the lovely presence of God. And Adam and Eve, who once walked with their maker in the cool of the day, now walk alone by the heat of the flaming sword. And as we continue through the Old Testament, we see that that that, that physical separation from Eden is experienced emotionally in the sinner's heart. Indeed, a few weeks ago in our Samuel series, we recalled the story of, of King David and Bathsheba and David's horrific sins of murder and adultery, and how that caused, amongst other things, David to doubt God's love for him. For when David saw his sin, what did he cry? Psalm 51 verse 11, cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Well, friends, that's what sin does. It breaks relationship, sows insecurity. Most people feel something of that when they sin, but but Christians particularly feel that. For Ephesians uh, 4.30, they also experience the grief of the Holy Spirit when they sin. Sin promises that the Christian a giddy freedom, but ends up driving them to grievous fear. Sin promises the joy of a one-night stand, but in the morning when the loved idol is gone, sin brings the Christian to the kitchen table and to the excruciating uncertainty. He loves me, he loves me not. Friend, I wonder if that's you this morning. I wonder if the sin of last night or the sin of last week or the sin of this last month has left you wondering this morning, does God love me not? If we look back, we we see that it's not just sin that is foremost in Paul's mind through this chapter. For as we've already seen in in verse 17 and 18 and 22, and as we now see here in verse 35 and 36 and 38, the second thing foremost in Paul's mind is suffering. For Paul addresses not only a, a first century church that still sins, but a first century church that still suffers. And the history books tell us the church in Rome was suffering and was about to suffer unimaginable suffering at the hands of the Emperor Nero. 
And so throughout this chapter, Paul reminds Christians not, not only of the pain of sin, but also of the pain that will come when they don't give in to sin. For the Christian's obedient following of Christ will lead to a Christ-like suffering. And those suffering will sometimes make us cry out like Jesus in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he saw in verse 15, Abba, Father, that the Christian suffering will also sometimes make us cry out like, like, like Jesus at the cross of Golgotha. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? From the same way that our sin sometimes makes us feel far from God because God is the, is the fountain of all holiness. So our suffering sometimes makes us feel far from God because God is the fount of all blessing. And so in the bright rays of blessing, are clouded by suffering. We, we wonder if the, if the son of blessing, God himself, has gone too. For again, that's how suffering works, relationally, isn't it? But just like the imaginary Ariel, when her old talking sea creature friends all reject her new life and her Prince Eric now feels far away from home, it is when the believer suffers badly in this world that their good heavenly father feels far away. Accordingly, whether in sin or whether in suffering, there will be times when we feel he, 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 he loves me not. And so verse 31, what we say to these things, what we say when, when sin and suffering come knocking, what we say to other Christians in those moments, well, the answer says Paul immediately, is that we ought to remember with confidence, he loves me. And so point two this morning, what tells me he loves me? What tells me he loves me? Well, in 1964, Betty Everett sang the answer to my parents' generation. as She sang, how can you tell if he loves you so? And then in 1990, Cher told me as a kid, in case my own generation didn't know. And two years ago, Kelly Clarkson sang it to Generation Z, in case my children didn't know. And in case you missed it, the lyrics to one of the most covered pop songs of all time goes like this. How can you tell? How can I tell if he loves me so? Is it in his eyes? Oh no, you'll be deceived. Is it in his sighs? Oh no, that he'll make believe. Is it in his face? No girls, that's just his charms. Is it in his warm embrace? No girls, that's just his arms. How about the way he acts? Oh no, that's not the way. And you're not listening to all I say if you want to know that he loves you so. It's in his kiss. That's where it is. It's in his kiss. That's where it is. Apparently that is where one is to find confidence in love, not in looks. Not in size or facial expressions or in hugs or in acts of kindness. We can have rock-solid confidence that someone loves us through the feelings we get when the mucosal membrane below our noses touches another. Well, I hope you know that that is not how you really tell whether somebody loves you or not. Because that is not how love is really evidenced. And it's certainly not how God evidences his love. Well, how can we tell that God loves us so? How can we know, verse 31, that God is for us and he's not against us? Well, the answer to verse 32 is not in his kiss, but rather in his conceding. 
to the crucifixion of his child. Verse 32. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Whether you're someone's parent or whether you're, you're, you're someone's child or both, what a staggering statement. Indeed, despite its familiarity, I pray that the, that the truth of it might wash over us again, for let it just marinate in it. God did not spare his own son. God did not keep back his most beloved. God did not give a, a second-rate Christmas gift. God did not choose to protect his precious child, but God gave him up. God allowed him to toddle off into this world of sin. God said, off you go at the school gate of suffering and allowed him to die at the hands of evil men, as we read earlier. For there was a divine purpose to his giving up. His lack of sparing was for the sake of of someone very special. His giving up was necessary for the sake of a lover. For it was to pay for the sin of you and me. For it was compulsory for justice to fall on evil. It was compulsory for the, for the penalty to be paid. It was compulsory for someone to, to push you and I out of the way of the juggernaut train of God's justice. The righteous wrath of God that will rightly run over every hurt ever done to anyone. God showed his love in this much needed way. God showed us that he was for you, Christian. You never accepted that. And friends, that is why if you are not a Christian, if you have not yet accepted the sacrificial giving of his son, that is why God does not love you, at least in the same way. Yes, God does love you in the sense that you're made in his image, You're precious to him. You have dignity and value. All human life is lovely to him. He made you. But God does not love you like he loves the one who simply accepts the gift that he gave. For you in your sin continue to reject his son or at least reject the reason for his coming. Indeed, through that, that, that juggernaut train of justice image, perhaps you can see why God is rightly against you today. For imagine if your own son, your own child, had pushed someone out of the way of that speeding train and your son had been hit in the process of saving them. But then that saved person turned around and saw your dead son and looked indignantly and said, why did your son push me? I didn't need that. I didn't need that. Friends, that's why God is against you. Because that is what you say about Jesus' cross. And his giving up of his very son. I don't need that. And so can you see that the reason why God is against you currently is not primarily because of what you thought about on Monday. Or primarily because of what you said on Tuesday. Or primarily because of what you did on Wednesday. Or indeed your sin is not ultimately seen in the fact that you did not even pray before the Thanksgiving meal on Thursday or because you were greedy and materialistic on Black Friday. The reason why God is against you is because you have rejected the giving up of his very son which is essential, which he did not hold back from you in his outrageous love for you. 
Friend, what you do with Christ is everything. What you do with Christ is everything. Don't look at the love of God in the face of his bleeding and dying son and say, I don't need that, thanks. You know that you need it in the same way that I need it every single day. Accept Christ. Turn to him today. Praise God for his amazing giving up and see that no matter what other people say about you, that God is deeply interested in you. Consider how much he loves you in this, in all that he has done in Christ. But for those of us who have accepted God's gift, we are to confidently recall that God is for us. That the giving up of his son is proof positive that, that he loves us and that he will always love us. That though our sin may permanently damage some of our human relationships, sin can never change God's love for us. For God did not spare his son and his son's work is done. God's love is the same because verse 33, look at there, nobody can now bring a charge against us. God's love is the same because verse 34, nobody can bring a conviction against us. You see, in verses 33 and 34, as uncertainty about God's love perhaps begins to rise as his Christian audience again, it becomes aware of their sin as Paul speaks to it. Paul immediately takes them by the hand and he whisks them straight back into the courtroom of earlier chapters. And Paul says to Christians doubting God's love because of their sin, verse 33, remember it is God who justifies Verse 34, remember Jesus Christ. He is the one. Remember, he died for your sins, taking the penalty. Remember, he was raised, proving that your debt was paid. Remember that he is now at the right hand of God, interceding, pointing to his wounds that paid for all your sin. And so, Christian, you may well, you may well sit and picture your great unloveliness. And you might rightly weep at it. And you may become nervous because of it. And you may sit at the kitchen table like the unfaithful aerial spouse, guilty and dismayed. And you may doubt God's love for you, uncertain that he will forgive you again. For you may picture in your mind the great multitude of people, the great multitude of people made in God's image that you have hurt, even when you were a Christian, you may picture them marching into that courtroom with a great record of, of wrongs that you did to them. You may picture the hours of, the, of videotape evidence of all your secret sins against your very maker ready to be played in the heavenly courts. You may picture all those great charges before you. Moreover, you may picture Satan as that great prosecuting lawyer with all the evidence ready to condemn you on judgment day. You may picture an unprejudiced heavenly jury. And above all, you may imagine with great anxiety your beloved heavenly judge and his assumed final declaration. You are guilty and you have become unlovely now. I love you not. You may picture all that. But in the very center of that courtroom, this very day, Verse 34, you must also picture the one who died. And verse 34, not only that, you must picture also the one who was raised, standing as your living defense lawyer this day. 
Indeed, you must picture where the risen Lord Jesus is right now. You must picture his hands outstretched and him alive, pleading your case, interceding today with the irrefutable evidence of his very self. And so you must picture all the charges and all the convictions and all those prosecuting counselors falling deathly silent, knowing that you are justified before God because the verdict has already been passed. And so knowing that you who trust his son are still lovely to him and always lovely to him. And so, friends, as as Christians, when we sense our unloveliness and when our sin causes us to doubt God's love for us, we we must not seek to, to try and win back that love through our endless confession on earth, that which fluctuates day to day. Likewise, we must not seek to win back that love through our trying harder on earth and that which fluctuates day to day. But we must recall that the love has already been won for us through Jesus' righteousness in heaven, that which fluctuates never. Friends, if you're a Christian, can you see here, there is nothing you can do to make God love you any more or to make God love you any less. Friends, I'm not sure which sins, which your many sins cause you to doubt God's love the most. Whether it is the atrocious sins of your past the promiscuous sins of your youth, sexual sins, sins of drunkenness, sins of incredible hurt you cause another, that cause you to think that, that God loves you not, or whether it is the seemingly overwhelming sins of your present, your inability to stop going to that internet site, your inability to stop gossiping and, and criticizing everything, your inability to not lose it with your kids every single day, that cause you to think God loves you not. My friend, if you're in Christ, you must not doubt, but must instead fix your mind on that courtroom, taking great assurance of God's love and recognizing that that assurance is not arrogance because your assurance comes from the certainty of what God has done and not what you fail to do. You know, the author and and. Uh, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, uh, a 9th, 17th century preacher by the name of John Bunyan, uh, was a man who often struggled with the notion that, that God loved him not. And because of that, Bunyan struggled to live confidently. He regularly had days when he struggled with the idea that, that God could, could love a, a sinning Christian like him. And, and so he spent many an earthly hour in confession and he spent many an earthly hour in church activity But one day when he's walking across a field, in his own words, a sentence fell across my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. Your righteousness is in heaven. And in that moment, says Bunyan, I thought that I could see Jesus Christ at God's right hand. Yes, there indeed was my righteousness, so that whatever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say about me that I did not have righteousness, that I was not lovely to him, for it was standing there before him. And so I saw that it was not in my feelings that made my righteousness better or worse, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ. The same today 
yesterday and forever. The chains fell off my legs and I was loosened from my affliction and I went home rejoicing because of the love of God. But you know, friends, as wonderful as that story is about Bunyan, Christians cannot always rely on sentences to fall across our souls when we walk alone in the countryside. Yes, God may in his kindness cause Bible verses to enter our hearts as we go for a long walk and cause visions of Christ to be set forth before us and, and so give us confidence when we sin. But you know, the normal means of recalling the love of God in the face of sin comes when we remind one another of the gospel, just as Paul very kindly does here for the Romans. And so let me ask you, if you're a Christian who perhaps does not suffer from that lack of confidence, if you're a Christian who, who rightly wakes up each morning and says, he loves me, someone who rarely ever sits at the kitchen table wondering, does he, does he love me not? What do you say to the fellow brother and sister who is plagued by that, that question when they sin and when they recall sins past and present? You see, in this careful don't speak, just listen, therapy culture that we live in, it's very easy for us to become convinced that when a Christian doubts the love of God, we must just probe away with more questions or that we must just stay tenderly silent, offering more tea and more sympathy. But that's not what we're called to do. You know, one of the most pivotal moments in my Christian life was when I was about to go out for a walk as a teenager. I was about to get out of my mother's car by my grandmother's house and walk all the way home across those English fields and sulk. And I was about to do that one day because I rightly felt sad about my sin and I felt the weight of my teenage rebellion and I felt unsure of God's love despite my fledgling faith in Christ. And my Christian mother, after a few questions, after hearing me drone on and on about how I often struggle to, to forgive myself in a very proud and introspective way, what did my mother do? Well, she did not stay silent. And she did not give me an assuring motherly hug at the time. And she did not let me walk through those fields alone. But essentially, my mother told me off. She said, Jonathan... If you're a Christian, and yet you stay in this place of constant introspection, wondering about whether God loves you, you have totally lost a heavenly perspective. Because your inability to forgive yourself, in that you are saying that, that God's forgiveness is not enough. And that Jesus' death and resurrection was insufficient, and that his pleading for you now is inadequate. And boy was she right. And boy did I need to hear it. Now, friends, of course, we listen to other people's confessions. When the Christian worries about God's love for them comes, of course, we're patient, we ask questions, and of course, we offer tea and sympathy and hugs. But if we really love our brothers and sisters, we will not stay silent like the secular counselor. We will not just sit with people in their past sin and go over it again and again and again. Instead, we'll take them by the hand and we will lead them into the heavenly courtroom and we will point them to Christ. 
once dead for our sins, now resurrected, now interceding for all who sin and fail to love their beloved as they should. The question is, will we do what my mother did then? We do what Paul does here. We point them to the proof of his love. What tells me he loves me? Answer Jesus Christ. But thirdly and finally this morning, how does he love me? How does he love me? You know, if you travel to Paris and if you saw a young French mademoiselle uh, gazing dreamily at a young French lover, flower in hand, picking off the petals expectantly, you would not actually hear her saying the simple rhyme of, uh, of the German girl or the English girl, he loves me, he loves me not. But rather the French rhyme goes like this. He loves me pas de tout, uh, not at all. He loves me un petit peu, a little bit. He loves me beaucoup, a lot. He loves me passionately, passionately, or he loves me à la folie, to the point of madness. Uh, and whilst as an Englishman, I normally take every opportunity to mock the French, uh, this love scale is more helpful. Because let's face it, when it, when it comes to, to loving things, it's not as if an all or nothing approach is really that helpful. Because as an example, do I love fish and chips? Yes, I love fish and chips. Do I love bananas? No, I hate bananas. I love them not. But do I love things like rice and lettuce? Maybe, a bit. I don't pick them out, but I don't love them. I don't love rice and lettuce like I like fish and chips. And I certainly don't love fish and chips like I love my, my, my wife and my children. And so when it comes to love, a scale is helpful. The French are right. We need more than a dichotomous, he loves me, he loves me not. So what about when it comes to God's love for us? We've already wonderfully discovered that God loves us if we trust in Christ. But does God love us, uh, love us un petit peu, a little bit? Does God love us beaucoup, a lot? Does God love us passionately? Passionately? Or does God love us à la folie, to the point of madness? Yes, the verb of God's love is certain, but what is the adverb of God's love? What L-Y word would you add to God's love? A very German, automatically or routinely, perhaps a very British, reservedly or bashfully, or a very French, passionately or madly. How does Paul describe the love of God in verse 35 onwards? Well, the adverb, the L-Y word that Paul employs is, as I hope you can see, inseparably. God loves us inseparably. The word brings to mind a ship tethered tightly to the harbor with, with strong ropes, or better, a ship shackled to the harbor with, with metal chains, or better still, a ship actually welded to the harbor forever. For Paul asks what? What shall separate us from God's love? What weather conditions shall pull that ship from the safe anchorage of God's enduring affection? And the answer is nothing. But what is striking to me, given the context, is that Paul does not then list a load of sins. For as Paul pitches the Christian tethered and shackled and welded to God's love, Paul no longer pitches the adverse weather conditions of sin which try to pull that ship from the harbor. For Paul does not say in verse 35, what shall separate us from the love of God? Shall murder? 
shall adultery, shall sins of lies and covetousness. That's what we might expect after the courtroom scene. But instead, Paul returns to the second issue of the day, away from the adversity of the Christian sin and to the adversity of the Christian suffering. For he also wants to encourage the suffering Christian who may have started to doubt God's love for them because of all that they are going through. And so verse 35, Paul lists the adverse weather conditions of tribulation. Perhaps the hardship of dealing with an evil colleague and distress, perhaps the the uncertainty of now finding a job in Rome and persecution, perhaps the end of a long career because they're a Christian. And Paul lists the adverse weather conditions of, of famine and nakedness, a lack of food and clothes that perhaps resulted from their persecution, and then danger and sword, the threat of death that would come upon these Roman Christians. Indeed, verse 36, Paul recalls the similar weather conditions for for God's people in the stormiest of days past, as he quotes Psalm 44, when God's innocent people were killed all day long, when they were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But says Paul, when all those adverse weather conditions come, you will not be shipwrecked. You will stay tethered, shackled, welded, to God's love, not because you are a very experienced sailor, not because you are a brave Navy SEAL type of Christian, but because God's love for you is inseparable. For Paul goes on in glorious crescendo, verse 38, have a look there. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation or be able to separate us from the love of God. Whatever the weather, our ship of our eternal existence is tethered, shackled, welded to the love of God. And it is inseparable because, look at verse 39, look carefully there, the love of God is the love in Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, the rope the chain, the welded metal, that which keeps us in God's love is Jesus' work. It is Christ that holds us fast. It is not ultimately in us, hanging on, loving God as best we can. It is he who holds us fast in God's love when we're struggling with sin and it is he who holds us fast in God's love when we are struggling and suffering. Friends, how wonderful How wonderful to know such a secure love when there's so much insecurity in our world today. How wonderful to know God's unconditional love when so many people in this world love us conditionally. Well, some people in this world may may love you passionately with the passionate love of the sports fan who will love you when you're playing well and all is sunny on the sports field of life. And some people in this world may love you madly with the madness of the young French lover who will love you when you're looking good and all is sunny in the Parisian cafe of life. But in Christ, God loves you inseparably. His love is an amazing, constant, unbreakable love that loves you through all life's hardships. When you are unworthy of love, 
when all is cloud and rain and ice storm and when all the world despises you as it despised his very son. God loves you inseparably in the midst of great suffering. But, but even more than that, finally, at verse 37, God loves you inseparably because of great suffering. Can you see that in verse 39? That Paul says that that because of suffering, we are more than conquerors. Literally, super conquerors. So what does it mean to be more than a conqueror? Well, if we were just conquerors over suffering, it would mean that that suffering no longer existed. But seeing how suffering still does exist for the Christian, and yet seeing how suffering cannot conquer us, what it means to be more than a conqueror is not merely to have suffering simply removed, but to have suffering now serve us. And so the Christian is not removed from the storms of life and the adverse weather conditions of of tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and sword because it is actually those harsh weather conditions of life that make Christians more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so it is not only, listen to this, it is not only that the storms of life cannot pull you from the harbor of God's love, but it is actually in truth that the storms of life and the icy rain of suffering serves only to somehow further cement us to the harbor of God's love, like ships welded fast to the dock in icy winter. So my Christian friend, if you're feeling something of that suffering list here that Paul catalogues, you came to church this morning feeling distressed, persecuted, maybe fearful, weather-beaten, feeling weary of all the weight of life and, and suffering, perhaps even knowing that your death is near and feeling perhaps an icy coldness when it comes to God. What an amazing thought for you to dwell upon today and into this new week that you will stay in the harbor of God's love for nothing will separate you from the love of God. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your outrageous, inseparable love for sinners such as us, for those who simply trust your Son. And Father, we thank you that in this world where different lovers will let us down, that your love is the only love that will not disappoint us, is the only love that can't change and that cannot be lost. Father, we praise you that your love is not based upon the ups and downs of life or even how well we live as Christians. Father, we thank you that it is something that that, that not even death can take away from us. 
because it is all held together by your son's work. And so we thank you most of all for him. And we love him. And Father, we love you. Help us to believe all this. Amen.